From the University of Oningen, this is Mindwise Podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. In this episode, we are speaking with Professor Peter de Jonge. Um, he's the chair of the developmental psychology department. He's also teaching the corresponding first-year course and will soon be the director of research at the psychological faculty. Um, he's also part of the research group behind HUGXNL, or How Nuts Are the Dutch, um, which seeks to find new approaches to mental health problems and their assessment. Professor de Jonge, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, before you took over the developmental psychology chair at the Ruch, you worked as a psychiatrist at the UMCG. How has that influenced your perspective as a researcher in developmental psychology? Yeah, well, um, I didn't really work as a psychiatrist. I, I worked as a psychologist, but at the psychiatry uh, department. Um, and um, I did so for about 20 years. Um, and uh, there was always um, still a psychologist in me who said that, for instance, uh, a purely biological approach to mental disorders is not doing justice to uh, the complex nature of people. And um, I guess that is also what drove me back to psychology after 20 years. Uh, it was a very nice period and I learned a lot. But in the end, I am a psychologist and I'm interested in the psychological aspect of mental disorders and particularly how they unfold over time. And that's why I wanted to be at the developmental psychology department. Would you say, given your practical experience, that there is a discrepancy between what is taught academically and what is clinical reality? Yes, very much so. Um, I have been uh, studying uh, depression, for instance, and there is a huge uh, discrepancy between how depression is conceptualized in, for instance, the DSM, um, and how depression is experienced by, by people and how depression is treated by clinicians. Um, for instance, we're, we're doing a study right now where we look at people who have a current depression, so a depression in the past 12 months. Um, and what we observe is, for instance, that more than 90% of them have had a different mental disorder that preceded the depression. So that means that depression almost never comes alone. It's always part of a bigger problem or a related mental problem. And while well, in DSM, it is considered like it is an entity. It is one thing. It's one disorder. But in reality, there are hardly any people who are depressed who do not have something else. That, that's, that's a kind of discrepancy between science or DSM on the one hand and clinics uh, on the other hand. But, but there are numerous examples like that. Okay, so the logical step, which you are following in a way, 
to resolve that is we have to conceptualize mental health problems differently than it's done currently. Exactly, yeah. Um, and I've been working on that in many different ways. Um, one of them is, is it enough to only uh, record symptoms or should we look at different things? Should we only look at how a person feels at this moment or should we look at the fluctuations over time? Should we look uh, only at psychological problems or also uh, take the biology, take the behavior, uh, take the cognitions into account? Probably mental disorders are much more complex than how they are described in uh, in statistical manuals. And clinicians, I feel, they know that and they treat people probably in a much better way than is described in the DSM. But um, science still falls behind a bit on that. So people have, when you consider a psychotherapist um, who is dealing with a person who is sitting just opposite of the other person like we are sitting now, um, probably this person will do much more complex stuff than only considering a person to have a disorder. Uh, the, the therapist takes a broader perspective, takes the person into account, takes the social communication into account. But how people do that, that's, I think, a crucial step in understanding mental disorders and how we should deal with them. That's interesting because I was wondering if having a manual like the DSM, if that gives the, the therapist as well as the patient some kind of reassurance because it's really easy to assess, okay, I have that yeah. and this is the problem. And also for the therapist, you just has to look, okay, what symptoms do I have? Where can I categorize it? Um, yeah, doesn't it kind of provide reassurance to both yeah, sides? Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Um, and in a way, it can provide reassurance and it will provide reassurance for, for some people. But sometimes I, I can imagine also situations where this reassurance is not good. Um, I, I remember um, uh, that I have, I, I've talked to a person once, a, a very uh, obese person. And uh, I had a talk with this person and he said, well, you know, I'm very, I, I know that I'm too heavy, that I should do something, be more, do, do more sports, eat less, uh, these kind of things. But, you know, I have obesitas. Um, so he had a name for his condition. Um, and that was almost like an excuse for him. Like okay. this obesitas is standing in my way. Um, and that is the kind of labeling you don't want to have. Uh, and often we do that also with children, like this, this child is so busy, but that's because he has ADHD. Um, and that is not a good way of dealing with people. So it also limits your actions. It also limits the, uh, the things you can do about your problems sometimes. If you say to a person... Okay, I'm feeling you're feeling sad, but that's because you are ill. Then it's almost like you take away the responsibility for the pro for the problem away from this person, 
And you say, well, it's, you know, it's just something biological. You don't play a role in it. And that's the kind of thing you need to prevent because people need to take a responsibility in most cases. Yeah, that's interesting because that's also what we've learned in the first year with the locus of control, yeah. which is either internal or external. Yeah. So basically this whole DSM approach where I can name what is wrong with me as far as that expression is uh, accurate. Um, actually counteracts me from acting. Yeah, well, it certainly has that risk. And um, even though there are mental disorders that are very severe and do have biological correlates and are definitely beyond the control of some people, then still it is good... Um, that people feel that they can do something about it themselves. And in most cases, there are things that people can yeah. do about it themselves. And in that case, then maybe the uh, saying, well, you have this disorder, uh, or it, it looks like you have this disorder, but still you should try to do this and this in order to uh, not get it, uh, let it go worse, something like that. How does this new approach to mental health that you are proposing and many others are proposing relate to the stigmatization that is still associated with psychological disorders? Yeah, well, it definitely relates to stigmatization. Um, and um, um, it can be very hard for people uh, to be diagnosed with a disorder uh, many people feel ashamed of that. And in fact, a large part of the so-called disease process is to get used to having this label. Um, and that causes a lot of shame for people. It causes a lot of um, yeah, feeling excluded from, from, uh, from other people. While in fact... Um, Well, I have this, this little tile on the wall says that um, um, most people are a bit crazy and in fact that is pretty normal. Um, and this is not... I don't want to reduce the burden of mental disorders uh, saying that it's not serious or anything, um, but um, most disorders are to a certain level uh, are something that normal people can relate to. Yeah. Every person has his low mood every now and then. Every person knows how it is to feel anxious or delusional even. Um, did you know that um, many more people uh, are um, hearing voices while there is no one uh, uh, around? Uh, like 10% of the population hears voices even when there is no one around. Uh, that is also a criterion for schizophrenia. Mm. Um, but also, yeah, everyone knows how it is to feel uh, overstimulated like ADHD people have. Um, and um, so mental disorders are hardly ever black and white. Uh, there are many uh, gray areas uh, between it. And we should use that also to normalize mental disorders yes. and to help people 
to prevent people from feeling ashamed. At least that's what I believe in. Yeah, so, so it will definitely counteract the stigmatization if you introduce, if you don't view psychological problems as exclusively abnormal. Mm -hmm. So rather we, we introduce some kind of normality and, and raise the yeah. awareness of that yeah. in the general public. Yeah, I don't believe that there is an ideal person, for instance. Uh, I don't feel, I, I don't have the feeling that there is an ideal kind of human walking around in this earth, but there are just many different kinds of people who all have their strengths and weaknesses. And maybe one person may be uh, a bit high on autism spectrum, um, but on the other hand, he can concentrate very well, he can uh, use very complicated formulas, etc. It's a bit of a cliché, but um, often... Um, Uh, well, we, we, we just need this heterogeneity between people. Uh, also, for instance, at work, it's always good to have a team where there's one person who is maybe a bit high on neuroticism, but this person will prevent you from making all kinds of mistakes. It's nice to have one, people who, one person who is a bit more narcissistic than others because this person will maybe uh, enable other forces or... You know, that, that, that is the kind of thing I believe in. And, and on a society level, we have the same thing. It's, it's good to have different kinds of people and not strive towards one normal, ideal person because that's, that's a wrong image. So we should all embrace the diversity yeah. of everybody. Yeah. You're part of the research group behind Hoogegesenel, or Haunats are the Dutch for English listeners. Can you shortly explain to our audience the main idea behind the study as it connects, of course, to what we've spoken about so far? Yeah. Well, How Nuts Are the Dutch was, was built on uh, three pillars. Um, one is the, the observation that most mental disorders are not black and white, but there are many gray areas in between. Um, the other one is that... Um, um, we should take into account what is normal for a person instead of what is normal for other persons. So there are some, there there, there are people who are always a bit uh, negative. Uh, if you ask this person, how are you feeling? Oh, I don't know. Um, and then I would not be worried if the next day I would talk to this person and he would say, well, I, I don't know if I feel good, but I would be worried if this person says, I'm feeling great. You know, <laughs> so you have to relate uh, a person's normality more to what is normal for this person instead of what is normal in society. That was the second pillar. And the third pillar is that when we talk about mental disorders, we are focused on the problems and not on the opportunities and not on the strengths. So these three pillars we used to um, um, to think about mental disorders in a, in a non-stigmatizing way. For instance, a person can have a tendency to be depressed or, or worried about uh, how the world is going, but this person is also someone who always tries to do good things, who is empathic to other people, um, and you can build on that part as a strength. Um, and, um, well, we have collected 
a lot of data uh, using both strengths and vulnerabilities of, of a whole bunch of people. 15,000 people participated in that. Um, and part of it is to, to write scientific papers on that, but part of it is also the project itself that we together with the general audience think about mental problems and mental vulnerabilities and not be focused only on scientific output because um, we are probably too much focused on that in science anyway. Let's see if we can if we can do something with the general population in order to make this world a better place. Thinking this a bit further, um, how do you see the integration of, of this project? First, the dimensional approach, the self-monitoring and the individualized feedback, which you also give mm -hmm. in the in the study, in the Dutch mental health system? Yeah, well, that's a very good and very difficult question. So one of the things that we did in uh, How Nuts Are the Dutch was that um, people would fill in um, what we called an electronic diary. They measured themselves for three times a day for 30 days in a row. And when they completed this, they would automatically get feedback on their emotional life. Um, so uh, they recorded all kinds of variables and so maybe uh, one person got as feedback like uh, if you uh, go, um, if you do sports, then the next day you feel much better. Uh, so maybe that is something that you should do more often. Or uh, if you uh, go to your uh, family, then the next day you feel that you mean something for other people. And so, but if you if you do this, then you feel worse, so maybe you should do that less. And so what, what we tried to do was to give this, this kind of feedback to people without having to label them as cases. And just to say, well, this is yeah. your personal model. Um, and of course, we wanted to apply this also to uh, people who have more severe problems. So imagine you have a person who is schizophrenic, who has um, delusional thoughts every now and then, but you can apply such, an, such a kind of approach to a person saying, well, what we observe is every time that you are distressed, distressed um, your delusional thoughts uh, increase. Uh, and that frightens you. Um, so what we should do is try to diminish your distress. And then we can look where this distress for this person comes from. Maybe it's because this person feels a burden to, uh, to do more things than he can actually do. So maybe he should be, uh, build it down. Or maybe it's because of this person is not seeing many people doesn't have many social contexts and maybe you can stimulate this person to see more friends and family um, and to do really just very small interventions that maybe in the long run would help a person to um, well to move around a disorder and um, without without having to 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 label whether this person is normal or not and um, 
that's that's a difficult process, of course, um, because our science is all built on um, generalizations. So we are used to thinking that uh, to 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 the kind of logic like if this person has this condition, you should do this because on average, it has an efficacy of zero point three, um, while behind that lies also a lot of heterogeneity between people and maybe well for every intervention if it is a, a pill or a psychotherapy uh, there is a lot of heterogeneity in efficacy and so what i am hoping is that we can tackle this heterogeneity and see well if we can devise interventions that are really effective for individuals and that are really tailored to individuals and not um, to say, well, I believe in this theory, this theory mm -hmm. applies to everyone. Yes. Um, I mean, that works nice in physics. You want gravity to work here and also in Australia and also if I drop this cup or if I drop a, a book. But in psychology... I'm just struck by the massive heterogeneity between people. And uh, if you don't take that into account, maybe you're obscuring scientific process progress instead of uh, helping. Interesting. As, as you mentioned, the, the study uses personalized feedback as an alternative to offering financial compensation for p participants, yeah. which is called crowdsourcing. Will we see models like this more often in the future? Since learning about oneself seems to be a good motivation for participating in the study. Yeah, um, well, I hope so. Because one of the advantages is that people are really intrinsically motivated. Uh, so in psychology, we rely quite heavily on self-report. And we have to, because if you not want to know how a person feels you should ask a person, right? I mean, you cannot draw blood to see how a person feels uh, or ask someone else. So we have to rely for many things on self-report. Um, and I believe that if a person is um, intrinsically motivated to give the most reliable self-report because this person wants to understand his own personal emotional life, then this person will give, give better self-reports than when you say, well, here you have 15 SONA credits. And um, there, you know, both may have their own advantages and disadvantages. But I am often quite worried about the reliability and validity of self-reports. And uh, we should find ways to make it as reliable and valid as possible. And I think this helps at the expense of um, that uh, our sample, for instance, is not at all representative for the Dutch population. So on How Nuts Are the Dutch, only people participated who wanted to participate. And what you see is that There is an over-representation of higher educated people. There is a yeah. higher uh, representation of women instead of men. 
because men are probably busy with watching football or whatever. <laughs> um, but um, uh, that is probably the price that we pay for that. But uh, for this moment, I'm particularly interested in, in making those self-reports as, as reliable and valid as we can. And I think it helps. Moving to your new position um, as the future director of research at the Heymans. Congratulations to that. Thank you. What are your plans? Yeah, well, um, I'm looking forward to this. Um, and I do have some very rough plans. And I don't know if they're feasible or not. But I have a, a kind of dream. And that is that uh, in psychology we... Uh, work even more together than we're doing now. So we have different fakgroepen, uh, units, um, and on the other hand, we are being reviewed on a department level. So the, the, the Department of Psychology is uh, going to be reviewed together as a whole. And we have di completely different kinds of research that we are doing, like We have people from theory and history of psychology who are doing more historical things, more philosophical, uh, philosophical things. We have people from experimental psychology, social psychology, clinical psychology, and all have um, different, let's say, paradigms how the typical kind of research that they are doing is being conducted. And somehow my image is that If we can combine those different ways of doing research uh, and, for instance, address one topic using different strategies, that that may be something where we can really improve the quality of our research and really solve societal issues. And, well, um, that, is, that is the rough image yeah. which I would hope to stimulate as a, as a director of research. Sounds exciting. I think so. Finishing with our last section behind the researcher. Aside from being a successful researcher in your field, um, what excites you in life? How do you seek fulfillment outside of academia? Ah, well, <laughs> that's an important question. Um, well, I'm, um, I'm married and I have three children. And um, two of them are still quite small and um, one thing that I learned from having children is um, that um, life is not all about direct pleasure because children are um, they, they, they consume a lot of your energy uh, on the other hand children uh, give you a lot of happiness and well-being and sense of meaning in your life. So sometimes, um, uh, well, that, that applies to many things I, in life, I think. And I take that back to my work also, like, okay, this is not fun to do at this moment, but in the long run, it is giving my life some meaning. And um, that, that frees me, that, that kind of thinking frees me from uh, a lot of... Um, Uh, problems because um, life is not all about fun life is about investing and looking 
to where want, do I want to go to or where do I want uh, the world to go to. And that is cost that that often costs a lot of investment, pain, difficulty, fatigue, all all of these kind of things. But if they are good for something better than yourself, some, some something bigger than yourself, then all these problems are worth the effort. <laughs> As many of our listeners are psychology students, like like myself. How would you say your students had and still have an impact on you as a researcher and as a person? Hmm. Well, I'm glad you asked that because um, uh, one of the nice things of working as a professor is that you encounter and uh, get to know people who are evidently smarter than yourself. Um, And that is very nice because um, I know some people who are just so very talented um, that it's um, that 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 I can really enjoy that uh, how how they develop um, and to see that they can achieve things that I could never have be, uh, have achieved uh, and that they can do very difficult stuff or can come up with very interesting ideas and that the only thing that I have to do is just watch them develop or maybe just push them a little bit in one mm. side or uh, facilitate them. And um, th that is really one of the nicest parts of my work. Um, and if you have a wa walk and a look at this department, you will see many talents who just like to do what they're doing who have also quite a lot of freedom to do what they are doing. And sometimes scientists forget that they have much more freedom to do what they think is good for themselves, for society as a whole. Um, they, they forget that they have much more freedom than they think they have. Um, and just as an, as an example, just start with what do you think is important in this world What is an important problem and how should I solve this? Um, people forget to, to ask these questions because they're so busy in conducting a study or writing up a paper. Of course, you should do that. But every now and then you should look back and think, well, why am I doing this in the first place? And um, I think we should always have the time and freedom in academia to think about these kind of things. That's encouraging. Well, <laughs> um, on a last note, as you are an expert in mental health and in the assessment of it, um, do you have any generalized advice for our listeners, whatever comes to mind? Well, apart from the one that I just uh, just said, um, I think, well. <laughs> Just follow your heart and, um, and everything will, in the end, will be okay. That's what I believe in. I think that's a perfect moment to stop our podcast. Peter de Jonge, thank you for participating. Thank you very and much for the interesting questions.
This podcast was a production of Mindwise for the Department of Psychology at the University of Groningen.